Good morning. It's an honor to be with you this morning and to address an important topic, prayer and the sovereignty of God. Um, Pastor Brian told me that you've been studying the doctrine of prayer quite a bit this summer. So I've been working on a book called Predestination, an introduction for a publisher named Crossway. And I've been swimming in that topic for quite a while. So when I, I proposed, how about if I preach on prayer and the sovereignty of God, they kind of go together and uh, he okayed the idea. So that's how we ended up here. So I'd like to start with a few questions here. First, if God foreordained precisely when you would get sick throughout your life and when you would get well and when you would die, then what's the point of praying that he would heal you? Have you ever prayed that God would heal you? Or if God has predestined that he would save some individuals and not others, then what's the point of praying that God would save a specific individual like your daughter or your dad or your neighbor or your friend? I prayed this morning for my biological dad, not a Christian, that God would save him. Am I being inconsistent with my, my belief in God's sovereignty? In other words, if God's in charge of everything and he ordains everything, then what's the point of praying? So that's the question I'd like to answer and address in this sermon. But before I get to that specific question, I think it'd be helpful to first ask two other questions so that we can feel the tension. So here are the, the three main questions I'll attempt to answer. I apologize the font's so small there. Um, I'll, I'll be reading what's on the screen, so you don't have to see it. But if you can't see it, it may help you. So here are the three questions. What are the two main ways theologians have understood God's sovereignty? We'll start there. And then second, what does the Bible teach about God's sovereignty? And then we'll get to our, our main question, number three. If God is in charge of everything and ordains everything, then what's the point of praying? So let's start with that first question. What are the two main ways theologians have understood God's sovereignty? So we're going to start off with just a little bit of history of how Christians have thought about this. So I'm, the, the first question isn't a what does the Bible say question. So it's kind of interesting to start a sermon this way. Here's why I'm doing that. Uh, if you walked into a room in which some people were deep into a conversation that had been going on for hours, would it be rude or polite for you to just barge right into the conversation without really knowing what's happened? <laughs> I, I think that's rude. Uh, I think uh, the respectful thing to do is figure out or what have they been talking about? What have they been arguing before I try to contribute anything, <laughs> right? So in a similar way, uh, as we consider God's sovereignty, it's really helpful to start by remembering that we're entering a conversation that theologians have been having for centuries. <laughs> so before we continue that conversation, it'd be responsible and respectful to have at least a, a basic understanding of what some influential theologians, Christian theologians, have argued. So that's, that's my thinking why I'd even start here. So specifically, it'd be helpful to be familiar with two major positions on God's sovereignty. 
Now, they have nicknames, and I'm going to tell them. You might, might scare you at first because you're like, I've heard that name, and I think that's really bad. So let me just, I'll tell the terms, and I'll define them. So before you, you judge the term, wait till I define it. First uh, is called Arminianism. It's named after a theologian named Jacob Arminius. And the other is called Calvinism, named after a theologian named John Calvin. Have you heard those terms before? Arminianism and Calvinism? Okay. So don't let the labels scare you. I'm using those labels because those are common nicknames. It's it's theological shorthand for different ways of thinking about God's sovereignty. And as Pastor Brian said, uh, my main vocation is to teach systematic theology. I'm a theologian. So this is... I know uh, some people hear these terms and it can become very schismatic and divisive and start fights. I don't want to do that. Uh, I'm, I'm just trying to tell you, here's main, two main historical positions. So let's just get our bearings by surveying these two main ways theologians have understood God's sovereignty in the context of, of larger theological frameworks. And for those of you who have studied this a little bit more, I'll just add a footnote here. I'm, what I'm going to do here is focus on the mainstream teachings in Arminianism and Calvinism. I know there's lots of intramural debates. I'm not going to get sidetracked on those. Just the mainstream teachings is what I'm going to present. So let's compare Arminianism and Calvinism on six basic issues. There we go. So here are the six issues. God's sovereignty, man's depravity, God's election, Christ's atonement, the Spirit's grace, and man's will. And then finally, the believer's perseverance. So for each of these issues, what I'm going to do is say, here's how Arminians, or Arminianism understands it, and here's how Calvinism understands it. I'm just going to compare and contrast so we get different senses of what are these two main views think about God's sovereignty. So let's start with that first topic, our first issue, which is God's sovereignty. Okay, so first, first issue, God's sovereignty. For Arminianism, God's sovereignty is general in this sense. God is in charge of everything, but he does not ordain everything. For example, God does not ordain sin. He allows sin to preserve man's free will. For Calvinism, God's sovereignty is not just general, it is meticulous. God is in charge of everything, and he ordains Everything. That's everything without exception. Here's issue number two. Man's depravity. For Arminianism and Calvinism, those first two, the first paragraphs there are identical. So they agree on this. As a result of Adam's fall, man is radically depraved and thus cannot repent and believe in Jesus without God's special grace. Both Arminians and Calvinists agree on that. But here's where they differ. For Arminianism, God gives that special grace to everyone. Arminians call it prevenient grace. And for Calvinism, God gives that special grace to only some people, the elect. This grace is effective and invincible. Here's issue three, God's election. For Arminianism, God's election is conditional. So God chose to save sinners on this condition, that he foresaw they would freely choose to believe in Christ. For Calvinism, God's election is 
unconditional. That there are no human conditions. God sovereignly chose to save individuals based solely on his for love. For issue number four, Christ's atonement. For Arminianism, the intention of Christ's atonement is general. That is, it provides salvation for all people without exception. And then Christ's atonement provides payment for the sins of all people, but God applies it to only those who repent and believe. He applies it only to the elect. For Calvinism, the intention of Christ's atonement is definite. That is, it provides and accomplishes salvation for only the elect. So Christ's atonement provides payment for the sins of only the elect, and God applies it to only the elect. Issue five is the Spirit's grace and man's will. For Arminianism, the Spirit's saving grace is universal and ultimately resistible. That is, every individual receives prevenient grace and can reject it. So how does, in what sense does man have a free will? In this sense, he can equally make alternative choices, that means he can do this or that, in the same circumstances. So, for example, man is equally free to choose Christ or to reject Christ. Theologically, repentance and faith precede and cause regeneration. Regeneration is the, the word that means when God gives new life, being born again. For Calvinism, the Spirit's saving grace is particular and ultimately irresistible. That is, it is persuasively effective for the elect. So in what sense does man have a free will here? In this sense, he chooses what he most wants. The Spirit doesn't force a man to repent and believe against his will. The Spirit transforms a man's heart with the result that he wants to repent and believe. So theologically, regeneration, the new birth, precedes and causes repentance and faith. And then finally, issue number six is the believer's perseverance. For Arminianism, genuine believers can finally fall away from the faith and they can continue, they can fail, excuse me, they can fail to continue in the faith and thus will not be eternally saved. So you can be a Christian at one point and then at a later point, no longer a Christian and you can go to hell. For Calvinism, genuine believers, that is the elect, cannot finally fall away from the faith. Believers continue in the faith, that's called perseverance. But why? Because God preserves them as eternally secure. That's called preservation. So those are six issues comparing and contrasting Arminianism and Calvinism. Do you think we'll have anything to talk about in the Q&A afterwards this morning? Yeah, there's a lot here. All right, so uh, what I want to point out here is that, that of those six issues, the first one, God's sovereignty, is the overarching category. Everything else follows from how you define God's sovereignty. If God's sovereignty is meticulous, that is, if he's in charge of everything and he ordains everything, then it follows that God also ordains every human's eternal destiny. Here's an, an argument from the greater to the lesser. Um, if I can pick up this pulpit, is it, yeah, there we go, then I can pick up my glasses that are on the pulpit. You understand that kind of argument? It's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If you can do this, then you can do this. 
So the argument is, well, if God is meticulously sovereign, that is, he, he is in charge of everything and ordains everything, then that also means he chose which people are going to be saved. You understand that argument? Okay. So really, all of this hinges on how we define God's sovereignty. And those final five issues, numbers two through six, they correspond to a popular acronym called TULIP. I don't know if you can see the red on the screen there. I, I put the first initial in red. Uh, the, the, the terms are total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. I think that the TULIP acronym is, though popular, is misleading. Um, it's, it's so memorable and well-known that Calvinists still use it, but here's why I think it's misleading. Let me just talk about each of these terms. Let's uh, start with the term total depravity. I think a better term to describe Calvinism's view is man's pervasive corruption. Here's why. The word total can sound like absolute, absolute depravity or utter depravity. But the point is not depravity's depth, like everyone's as wicked as he possibly can be. That's not what this is saying. The point is depravity's breadth. It's every aspect of a person is corrupt. Your body, will, mind, conscience. So the, the corruption is all pervasive. It, think of it um, like how salt permeates salt water. The salt's everywhere in it. Or how chlorine permeates pool water. It's all over the water. It's, it's pervasive. Pervasive corruption describes man's condition. And total inability describes the result of that condition. In other words, a non-saved man, an unregenerate man, cannot repent and believe in Jesus apart from God's special grace. That's what this is, is emphasizing. The second term, uh, unconditional election, I think a, a more accurate, less misleading term is the Father's sovereign election. Here's why. I think that term unconditional can sound like arbitrary. It can sound that way to some people. It's, it's, it sounds as if God the Father selected individuals randomly and whimsically, like flipping a coin or picking names out of a hat. The point is that before God created the world, he sovereignly chose to save specific individuals by name without basing his choice on any human conditions. The all-wise God has reasons for everything he does. We don't know what all of them are. Third term, limited atonement. I think you could express better as Christ's definite atonement. The term limited may sound like it, it's tiny, weak, sparse, even defective. But Christ's atonement is global, powerful, lavish, and perfect. The point is that Christ did not die for everyone in the same way. Christ definitively provided and accomplished redemption for particular individuals. And it's the same individuals whom the Father elected and whom the Spirit regenerates. The members of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, do not work contrary to each other, but they work in a unified way to accomplish the same goals. Fourth term, irresistible grace. I think more accurately, you could say is the Spirit's effective grace. Irresistible may sound like what a robber does. He attacks, forces, steals, or maybe even like what a prostitute does. Tempt, allure, 
seduce. And further, that word irresistible may sound like it's impossible to resist God's grace. But the Bible gives examples of people who resist God's grace, like in Acts 7.51. So it is possible to resist God's grace. The point here is that it's impossible to ultimately resist God's special saving grace. This special saving grace is effective and invincible. It's effective in that it successfully produces the result that God intends. And it's invincible because it's too powerful to defeat or overcome. When God's spirit causes a man to be born again, he gives spiritual life to a man who is spiritually dead. He changes that man's heart by effectively calling him, like Lazarus, come forth, so that he willingly, not reluctantly or protestingly, but he willingly comes to Christ. And then the final term, perseverance of the saints, I think more accurate is God's preservation of the saints. So perseverance may make it sound like a believer's activity is the key. But the point is that believers persevere because God preserves them. We work out our salvation because God works in us the willing and the working, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So this, this, this TULIP acronym does present a logical order. It starts at the top with a T with man's desperate need to be saved, and then the rest explains how God saves his people. So for the U, for unconditional election, God the Father chose to save specific individuals without basing his choice on the condition of faith. And then the L, for limited atonement, God the Son atoned particularly for those individuals whom the Father chose to save. And then the I, for irresistible grace, God the Spirit effectively calls him to himself. And then the P, God enables them to persevere until they die or Christ returns. Now, this isn't a, a, a sermon on all of that. I'm just surveying the views here. If you want to study that more, here's a book I'd recommend to you. It's based on an article that John Piper wrote for my church. So he's, he was a pastor of my church for over 30 years. And he wrote an article called What We Believe About the Five Points of Calvinism. It, he updated that as this little book called Five Points Towards a Deeper Experience of God's Grace. And this is available for free online as a PDF at desiringgod.org if you want to look that up. Now, you've probably figured it out by now, but I'll just say it in case you're wondering. Uh, I am a Calvinist. Um, some of you are laughing like, yeah, we, we got that. Um, so I don't, I don't have a Calvinist tattoo anywhere on my body. I don't go around calling myself this all the time because some people hear it and they think I mean something else by it. But I just explained my terms, so now you know what I mean by it. And it's just theological shorthand. Some people think that Calvinists don't believe in evangelism or missions, which is not true. I'll say more about that in a moment. I do not follow John Calvin in a proud or partisan way. Think at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. You know, the I follow Cephas, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Christ. No, that, that's, that's, uh, that's worldly ways of thinking. Uh, but I am convinced that what theologians call Calvinism faithfully expresses what the Bible teaches. And my main goal for the rest of the sermon is not to explain and defend what any other human thought, like Calvin, about God's sovereignty, my goal is to explain and defend what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty. And that leads to the second question, which is, what does the Bible teach about God's sovereignty? Now, there's no way I can do justice to this question in a short segment of a sermon. 
the best I can do is give you a taste here of what Scripture says. So I'm going to survey five passages or groups of passages that will make the, the argument, I think, that God is not just in charge of everything, but that he ordains everything. Here's the first passage. Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. If I were to choose one passage of Scripture to express concisely the sovereignty of God, I go there. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Here's a second one. This is from Daniel 4.35. The Most High does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say, what have you done? God is the supreme king. That's why that's true. And there are many passages teach that. God is the supreme king. No one can, uh, can control him. Third, Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that's expressing the truth that God has a plan, a wise plan, and everything he does is in accordance with that plan. He carries out his plan. Number four, this is two passages, Isaiah 45 and Amos 3. The Lord proclaims, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Amos proclaimed, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? These are heavy passages. I'll talk about that in just one moment. Let me show you one more group of passages. Number five. Genesis fifty twenty, Joseph explained to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it, that is, he meant evil for good. God meant evil. He intended evil for good. So God ordains everything, including through secondary causes, the evil that humans freely choose to commit. God ordains everything. That includes every water droplet, every snowflake, every fire ember, every gust of wind, every single respiratory droplet and airborne particle that transmits viruses like COVID-19, every moon and planet and star in the Milky Way galaxy, every nation and human ruler, every natural evil, every moral evil, including every human decision to reject Christ, every human decision to turn from sin and embrace Christ, everything. God is sovereign over all. Now, in response to what the Bible teaches about God's meticulous sovereignty, people commonly raise at least two objections. So let me briefly respond to these. We could talk about this more in the Q&A that follows. The first objection is, well, what about free will? What about free will? I don't have time in this sermon to explain in depth what the Bible teaches about free will, um, but I'll say this. I believe the Bible teaches that God ordained both what we choose and that we freely and responsibly 
choose what we most want. I'll say that again. God ordained that we would choose what we choose and that we are choosing freely and responsibly what we most want. In other words, God ordained not only what every human would do, he ordained that every human would do so freely. You're thinking, how is that possible? And the theological answer is easy. It's a mystery. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I, I can't precisely explain it. But God has revealed both of those truths in Scripture, so we dare not deny one of them to make it make more sense to our, our little brains, simply because, simply because we don't understand exactly how God can, for example, ordain sin and not be guilty of sin himself. So here's my favorite way to illustrate this, this tension. It's with the analogy of a novelist and the characters in his story. So I'll just, I'll just pick a, a story. C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You guys know that story? All right. So I won't get into details lest I give it away because if you haven't read it, you should read it. Uh, but there's a character named Edmund who betrays some people. So the question then is, who's responsible for Edmund's betrayal? C.S. Lewis or Edmund? So when I ask this in classrooms, students will be like, well, uh, and they get kind of frozen, like, if I say that, well, then what about that? And the answer is, yes, they're both responsible. So then the question is, okay, they're both responsible. Is it, is it 100, or like 99-1? Is it 50-50, 75-25? How would you parse up the percentage of responsibility? And then the students freeze again. Uh... And then there's usually one or two who are very bright, and they say, it's 100-100. C.S. Lewis, as the author, is fully responsible in one sense, and Edmund, the character, is fully responsible in another sense. And that's, that's the right answer. The creator has authority over his creation like a novelist has authority over his, his story. That's something like what we mean when we say that God, the creator, ordained what humans the creatures would freely choose to do. And now I'm going to continue with this illustration and argue like Paul does in Romans 9. Uh, You might say to me then, but that analogy fails because it compares cardboard characters in a fictional story to complex human beings in the real world. It's much more complicated than that. That's how some would reply to that, that, that analogy I used. And I agree. I agree. I concede that it is much more complicated than that. So yes, the analogy has limitations. But not mainly for that reason. It's very telling that the way people object to that analogy of the author and the characters in the story, the way they object is, but humans in the real world are much greater than people in a fictional story. I've never, after all these years of using that illustration, I've never had someone object by saying, well, that doesn't work well because God is far more powerful and knowledgeable and benevolent than a human author. No one goes there. It's always, well, humans are way greater than that. No one goes the other direction. Why is that? Uh, Well, God 
can do way better than write a fictional story. He can design the universe with complex characters who freely and responsibly choose precisely what he ordains. And if that analogy of an author and the characters in his story is offensive to you, remember that there's another analogy in Scripture that's much more severe than that one. It occurs at least six times. And it's the analogy that God is a potter and that humans are clay. Six times. It's in Job 10, Isaiah 29, and 45, and 64, and Jeremiah 18, and Romans 9. So if it offends you to be compared to a character in a fictional story, what do you think of God repeatedly com comparing you to a clay pot? Again, we could say a lot more about free will, but that's uh, how I uh, start to address that objection. The other objection is this. How can God ordain sin but not be guilty of sin? And that's, a, that's a very good question. Uh, and theologians help us here by distinguishing three kinds of causes. Ultimate, proximate, and efficient. So the ultimate cause ordains or ensures an action. Approximate cause influences an action. And an efficient cause directly performs an action. So I'll illustrate this with two, uh, two stories in the Bible. One is David's census, and the other is the crucifixion of Christ. So let's start with the census. Who is the ultimate cause of, of David numbering the people? Well, Second Samuel 24 says, The Lord incited David to number Israel and Judah. So God is the ultimate cause. But First Chronicles 21 says, Satan incited David to number Israel. Satan would be the proximate cause. He influences the action. And then third, the efficient cause is David. King David commanded Joab to number the people. And then later in 2 Samuel 24, David said, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. I did it. So ultimate, proximate, efficient. Or another example is the death of Christ. The ultimate cause of the death of Christ is God. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite or predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2.33. The people did whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place, Acts 4.28. Proximate cause of the death of Christ is the Jews. The Jews incited Jesus' death by demanding that Pilate crucify Jesus. And then an efficient cause is the Gentiles. The hands of lawless men and the Gentiles, quoting from Acts 2 and 4, they carried out Jesus' crucifixion. Specifically, Pontius Pilate ordered it, and the Roman soldiers performed it. So David's census and the death of Christ illustrate three levels of causes. God, as the ultimate cause, accomplishes his purposes through secondary causes. Secondary are proximate and efficient. So the secondary causes intend evil, but God intends the evil for good. The people who freely sin as secondary causes are accountable to God for their sinful actions. Now one caution here before I move, move on. When you describe God as the ultimate cause, that can be misleading because in English the word cause typically means to make something happen. So we must emphasize that God is never the efficient 
cause of evil. He never infuses evil thoughts or intentions into the hearts of sinners. God is not sinful, never guilty of sin, never blameworthy. Now, if you'd like to study more about what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty, I'd recommend starting with chapter 11 in this book. Okay, I'm having problems again advancing slide. There we go. It's called How Long, O Lord? Reflections on Suffering and Evil. Chapter 11, this is by D.A. Carson. Chapter 11 is titled The Mystery of Providence. And in just 25 pages, Carson presents what I found to be the best summary on what the whole Bible teaches about God's sovereignty. It's excellent. So now we're ready to answer our third and final question. The first is, what are the two main ways theologians have understood God's sovereignty? Arminianism and Calvinism. Second, what does the Bible teach about God's sovereignty? I believe it teaches that God is in charge of all things and he ordains all things. So now we come to this third sharpening question. So if God's in charge of everything and ordains everything, then what is the point of praying? Now, as I answer that question... I'm going to back up and ask a similar question specifically regarding God's saving specific individuals from their sins. So how does, how does God accomplish and apply his plan to save individuals like you and you and you? How does he do that? Three ways. First, God accomplishes his sovereign plan to save individuals through Christ's saving work. Second, God initially applies his sovereign plan to save individuals through the Holy Spirit's regenerating work. And third, God ordained that individuals would repent and believe through two means, through hearing God's word and through prayer. I'm going to focus on that third way, the God-ordained means of hearing God's word and prayer. If God ordains that you will live for the rest of this sermon, then he also ordains the means to that end. Your heart will keep pumping. You will keep breathing. When God ordains an end, he also ordains the means to that end. It would be foolish for you to say, well, God has ordained that I'm going to keep living, so I'm going to stop breathing because I'll I'll live anyway. That's a foolish way to think. When God ordains that an individual will repent and believe, he also ordains the means to that end. And the Bible specifies these two means for conversion, hearing God's word and prayer. So when an an unbeliever hears God's word, whether the gospel is preached in a sermon or proclaimed through some other medium like a book or a talk or a personal conversation, that's, that's hearing God's word. And prayer, of course, is when you ask God to save an unbeliever. Paul explained in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So hearing God's words is a God-ordained means for unbelievers to exercise a God-enabled repentance and faith. In Acts 13, when Paul and Barnabas preached in Antioch in Pisidia, they first preached to Jews, and then they preached to Gentiles. And Acts 13.38 says, when the Gentiles heard this, they heard this, they heard the word, they heard the preaching, then 
they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The text does not say that after the preaching, as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. Look at it. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So hearing God's word is a means for those who have been appointed to eternal life to believe. So note how Paul connects election, faith, preaching, and prayer in this passage in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 3. We ought always to give thanks to you, God. Excuse me. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. God chose you. That's election. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and by belief in the truth. Belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. That means you heard the good news. That was a means for you to believe. For what purpose? So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Pray for us. Pray specifically that the word of the Lord would speed ahead. It would run. That means we get to pray that God's word would run and transform idolaters into God worshipers. Prayer is a God-ordained means for God to grant repentance and faith to the elect in response to hearing the gospel. That's why Paul exhorts in Colossians 4, which is our passage we started with, devote yourselves to prayer, praying at the same time for us as well. For, what are we doing this? That, for what purpose? That God will open up a door for us, open up to us a door for the word so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Prayer is a God-ordained means for people to come to Christ. So this application follows from all we've just seen. Proclaim God's word to unbelievers. Support others who do that. And pray. Ask God to save believers. Don't try to discern which unbelievers are elect. Only God knows who the elect are. Your responsibility and your privilege is to proclaim the gospel to anyone and everyone. God commands in Acts 17.30 that all people everywhere should repent. That's for everyone. We proclaim this message indiscriminately. Luke 24.47, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, not just some people. So here are three exhortations, brothers and sisters, that follow from that. Number one, obey God even if you don't have answers to all your philosophical questions. Why should you bother proclaiming God's word and praying if God has already chosen to save specific individuals? And the answer is simply because God tells you to. He commands you to. And whatever God commands you is for your good. God has ordained both the, the end, 
that is who will be saved, and the means to that end. So it would be foolish to think, well, since God has ordained uh, that I will live for 10 more years, then I don't need to breathe or sleep or eat or drink at all. Well, Well, God has ordained the exact length of your life, but you don't know whether God ordained for you to live 10 more years or 10 more seconds. You are responsible to keep breathing and sleeping and eating and drinking. And that responsibility is perfectly compatible with God's meticulous sovereignty about how long you will live. Similarly, God ordained which individuals he will save, but you don't know who they are. You are responsible to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers and to pray for them. And that responsibility is perfectly compatible with God's meticulous sovereignty about whom he chose to save. Again, it's not our job to try to discern who the elect are. Our job is to proclaim God's word and to pray. God ordains both the means and the ends. Now, on your own, you can't possibly proclaim the gospel to every unbeliever on the planet, but you can testify on behalf of King Jesus to your family and friends and neighbors and coworkers, and you can pray for them and for the nations. You can pray. And you can support others who are devoting their lives to proclaiming the gospel regionally, nationally, internationally. As John writes in 3 John 8, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So that's, that's one exhortation. A second is God's sovereignty should encourage you to evangelize and to support missionaries. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, this is Acts 18, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I'm with you. And no one, no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That, that encouraged Paul to know that God had already chosen many people in that city. Paul didn't know who they were. And you should be encouraged that wherever you are, there may be people whom God chose before the foundation of the world. That should encourage you to evangelize. And finally, number three. Third exhortation, God's sovereignty should encourage you to pray for unbelievers. I'm going to refer to C.S. Lewis again. In his book, The Magician's Nephew, Polly and Diggory are terribly hungry while the winged horse Fledge is happily eating grass. And here's a, a short dialogue. Diggory says, well, I do think someone might have arranged about our meals. And the horse Fledge says, I'm sure Aslan would have if you'd asked him. Polly says, wouldn't he know without being asked? And Fledge says, I've no doubt he would, but I've a sort of idea he likes to be asked. (laughs) That's a good line. Like Aslan, God likes to be asked. He likes to be asked, and he tells us to ask. Now, Christians, this, this is so fascinating. Both Calvinists and Arminians alike seem to universally affirm that God is sovereign in salvation. And they they show this in two ways, how we thank God for saving us and in how we ask God to save believers. Now, do any of you ever think something like this or say something like this to God? Oh, thank you, God, that I knew a good deal when I saw one, when I kind of sized up the pros and cons of trusting in Christ and not trusting in Christ, of living in sin versus coming to Christ. Yeah, I kind of did a cost-benefit analysis, and I, I made the right call. 
Does any Christian think that way? No, we're like, God saved me. He rescued me. I was going headlong the wrong direction. He reached out and gave me new life. And that's also how we pray for non-Christians. If you have a, a child who's away from the Lord or uh, a sibling or a parent or dear friend, do you, do you pray, uh, Lord, would you um, arrange events so that Tommy, by his own autonomous free will, will... No, we say, Lord, change him, right? Save him. Give him new life. Change his heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Like, let him see the glories of Christ so that he no longer hates what you hate, so that he loves what you love. Change him. That's how, we, that's how we talk about our own conversion. That's how we pray for other people. And that sometimes shows that we, we pray better than we can articulate our theology. That's because that's how it really is. It's, it's not logically contradictory for us to affirm God's meticulous sovereignty and to be zealous to evangelize locally and globally and to pray fervently. We should celebrate God's sovereignty and enthusiastically support international missions. You heard the name William Carey. He lived from six, uh, 1761 to 1834, and he's known as the father of the modern missionary movement. When he was about 25 years old, the Calvinist William Carey proposed a question at a meeting for Baptist pastors. He said, have the churches of Christ done all they ought to have done for heathen nations? And one of Carey's biographers records that the venerable John Ryland Sr. sprang on his feet with his eyes flashing like lightning and in tones resembling thunder, cried out, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine either. And that rebuke is infamous now because God used Carey as a catalyst for the modern missions movement. About six years after that incident, in 1792, Carey finished his seminal 87-page book, it's titled, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. And note especially those words I've highlighted, obligations and means. So William Carey begins his book by arguing that Jesus' great commission to make disciples, that's an obligation. And it's not just for the apostles, it's for all of Jesus' disciples. We're obligated to make disciples. Those are the marching orders for the church today. Make disciples. And then Carey ends his book by arguing that believers must do this by using means, particularly by fervently praying and wisely strategizing and generously giving. So, how would you answer the question I began with? Uh, I started with this question. If God is in charge of everything, and he ordains everything, then what's the point of praying? I'd answer it very briefly like this. The point of praying is to obey God by being a means for him to accomplish his holy will. God accomplishes his holy will through means, like particular prayers, and we get to be part of that. And if we have questions about how this works from a philosophical perspective, and 
Some of us will always have those lingering questions, and that's okay. Even then, we should always obey God, even if our little minds don't fully understand how God's sovereignty and our responsibility are compatible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being in charge of everything and for ordaining everything. Thank you for being in charge of absolutely everything. It would be terrifying if you weren't in charge of everything. And thank you that you have ordained everything. Please help us honor you as joyfully loyal servants who do what you've commanded us to do, specifically to pray. Amen.